proposition from Rev. George Junkin, Part D, from Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Proposition from Rev. George Junkin, Part D. This, Mr. Moderator, some of our brethren have found themselves too honest-hearted to deny. Some have fully admitted it. One excellent brother, seeing no room for denial, proceeded to argue thus against me, admitting the position I have elaborated as true. What if the Bible of old did tolerate slavery? Does it hence follow that it must be tolerated now? The Bible tolerated polygamy? Here is a parallel case, and you will be obliged by this argument to tolerate this evil. The Hebrews held slaves, and were, notwithstanding, members of God's church. Hence it is inferred, Christians may hold slaves, and yet be, and continue, members of God's church. But, said our good brother, the temper of whose steel I understand, and can therefore make free to try its edge, if this argument is good for the toleration of slavery, it is also good for the toleration of polygamy. For the Hebrews often had a plurality of wives and concubines, and were, notwithstanding, accounted reputable members of the church. Consequently, Christians may indulge in polygamy, and yet occupy a reputable standing in the church. Such was the brother's argument, as I think every one in the house must have understood it. And I admit it is very plausible, and would be conclusive, if he would prove one thing, viz., that polygamy was tolerated in the New Testament. Then the cases would be exactly analogous. But exact similarity is indispensable to truth and safety in an analogical argument, and therefore, until it shall be shown that polygamy existed and was not forbidden in the New Testament, as I have shown that slavery existed and was not forbidden, the argument is not a tripod, it is only a biped, and a stool cannot stand on two legs. But this postulatum necessarium, this indispensable point, cannot be sustained, for it is the reverse of truth. The New Testament prohibits polygamy. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cling to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. Here is a prohibition, not only of causeless divorce, but of polygamy. A man can have but one wife, says the Redeemer, and this is the original law of man's creation. Moses tolerated your departures from this law, for the hardness of your hearts. But now the original law is placed before you. Accordingly, wherever the duties of husbands are spoken of, 
there can be found no recognition of two or more wives to one husband. For the husband is the head of the wife. Let every one so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 Always only one is implied. But again, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, describing the qualifications of a bishop, Paul says he must be the husband of one wife. And so, verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. So Titus chapter 1 verse 6, the husband of one wife. Now these show that polygamy had been tolerated, but now is no longer to be tolerated. It is censured as a disqualification for any office in the church. No matter what qualifications, otherwise a man may have for office, if he have more than one wife, he is excluded from office. Now let our anti-slavery brethren produce us a declaration of our Redeemer to this amount, that slavery, which Moses tolerated, is not any longer to be tolerated, that no slaveholder shall be a deacon, a presbyter, or a bishop. Let them do this, and their analogical argument is good, and we will abandon the defense. Thus we shut them in. But some brethren in the opposition seem, to me, Mr. Moderator, to have gone somewhat farther towards giving up the ship. Did not your ear catch an argument to this amount? Quote, it is not slavery in the abstract we oppose. We disregard abstractions. We oppose slavery as it exists in these United States. This, we say, is a sin. And against this, we lift up our voice, and would have this synod to condemn it. Let abstract relations go to the wall, but let us attack the actual living reality. Close quote. Surely, sir, you heard this. Well, what is its concession? Does it not concede their inability to occupy a foothold on the ground of the civil-social relation of master and slave? Does it not concede that they are able only to assault the abuses, the cruelty and tyranny and oppression so often connected with it? I think one prominent debater admitted, in so many words, that he would not, or could not, contend against the abstract relation, but against the practical system he felt able and determined to contend. Well, if they abandon the principle in dispute, let us, for a moment, look at the practical argument. Allow me to state it in full logical form, namely, all things which involve many great and crying moral evils ought immediately to be abandoned and abolished. But slavery, as it exists and is practiced in the United States, involves many great and crying moral evils. Therefore, slavery, as it exists and is practiced in the United States, ought immediately to be abandoned and abolished.
Is not this the pith and substance of all their arguments? And who will point out one logical defect about it? Notwithstanding its plausibility, let us apply the argument to other social relations and see how it will work. Marriage, or the relation of husband and wife, as it exists and is practiced in the United States, involves many great and crying moral evils. Therefore, it ought to be immediately abandoned and abolished. Is not this identically the same argument? Does it not rest on the same major, namely, all things which involve great and crying moral evils ought to be immediately abandoned and abolished? Do you not admit the expressed minor? Can any man deny that husbands and wives in the United States do often quarrel and wrangle in the very matters of duty belonging to the relation? Is there no hellish jealousy, no open abuse of power, no violent treatment, no abandonment, no horrid murder committed? Clearly, the minor is true, and the conclusion inevitable. Again, the parental relation, as it exists and is practiced in the United States, involves many great and crying moral evils. Therefore, it ought to be immediately abandoned and abolished. Most assuredly, harsh, unkind treatment, violent beating, resulting in death sometimes, lessons of impurity, even to compulsory prostitution, and all the natural results, lying, swearing, stealing, quarreling, drunkenness. All these are involved in and brought about by the parental relation. The conclusion is logical. It ought to be immediately abolished. Yet again, civil government, as it exists and is practiced in the United States, involves many great and crying moral evils. Therefore, it ought to be immediately abandoned and abolished. Does any man deny the minor? Will any man say there are no moral abominations practiced in our government and our politics? Are fraud and villainy no moral evils? Are perjury and falsehood no moral evils? Are slander and defamation no moral evils? Are stabbing and dirking and shooting men with all the blasphemous language which usually accompanies such things, are these no moral evils? You see, sir, the conclusion closes in upon us. Our civil government ought to be immediately abandoned and abolished. Examine every one of these and see whether there be any difference in their construction. Persuaded, I am, no man who understands what an argument is, will deny their exact similarity, their logical identity. But will our brethren take the conclusions? If not, will they be so good as to point out the fallacy in their own argument, or so candid as to admit its existence? The fallacy here is in one term, and springs from the accident. All things involve moral evils. 
slavery involves moral evils. Things may be involved necessarily or accidentally. Blue paper involves arsenic, not necessarily, but only contingently. Arsenic involves a poisonous quality, not contingently, but necessarily. Anger involves moral evil, not necessarily, but only contingently. Be ye angry, and sin not. Murder involves moral evil, not contingently, but necessarily. Thus you see that before you can draw the conclusion that our civil government ought to be immediately abolished, you must prove that it necessarily involves villainy, perjury, falsehood, etc. But that these evils are separable, at least in a high degree, from it, must be admitted, and therefore the conclusion is not correct. Before you can infer that the parental relation ought to be immediately abolished, you must prove that it necessarily involves the evils of cruelty, etc. Before you can infer that marriage ought to be immediately abolished, you must prove that it necessarily involves jealousy, angry contention, and murder. Before you can infer that slavery ought to be immediately abolished, you must prove that it necessarily involves many great and crying evils. If these are contingent and avoidable, the inference is illogical. It springs from the fallacy of the accident. But there is another question to be met before you can infer that our government ought to be abolished. Be it even conceded that all the evils enumerated are not avoidable, that some cannot, in the present state of human nature, be entirely remedied. Will it even then follow that civil government ought to be abolished? Certainly not. The previous question is, would the abolition of our government, because some evils involved in it are unavoidable, be a removal of these evils and involve fewer? Unless this can be answered affirmatively, clearly the inference against it is illogical. So, were it proved that all the evils involved in American slavery are not avoidable, but some are necessarily involved, still it will not follow that it ought at once to be abolished, unless it can be shown that this abolition would remove the remaining evils, and not introduce greater. We have been told the golden rule, love thy neighbor as thyself. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them makes directly against the very existence of slavery, and leads to immediate abolition. But the direct reverse of the latter is true. The golden rule will not suffer immediate abolition, except in the special cases where the slaves are, at the time, in a capacity and circumstances in which freedom would be a real benefit to them. To turn out slaves into the kind of freedom which they enjoy, rather which they endure and suffer in our free states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, 
with the habits, the education, the ignorance of men and business which they mostly labor under, would be to act a cruel part, directly in opposition to the Savior's golden rule. No man but a fool would wish to be thus set free. No, Mr. Moderator, the man in whose hands divine providence has thrown any of his fellow men in this form is bound by every tie that can bind the soul of man not to set them free until he can do it to their advantage. He may feel them a heavy burden, a charge weighty and difficult to manage, but he is bound by God's authority to sustain the charge, to endure the labor of caring for them, making them work, feeding, clothing, and instructing them, and thus fitting them for the use of freedom, and so leading on to that result whenever it can be done consistently with the highest interests of the community. The opposite doctrine is radicalism, and leads to the subversion of all law and order. We have a sample of it often in the treatment of children. Some parents take no control over their children. They are too indolent and have too little conscience to feel the obligation to rule their household. Their children enjoy a vast amount of liberty, that is, of reckless criminality, freedom from all restraints. And, of course, they become the pests of society, and ultimately the inmates of penitentiaries and candidates for the gibbet. But God's law requires and commands parents to rule their children. They have no right to set them free until they are first educated and fitted to provide for themselves. So masters are bound to keep their servants in bondage until they are fitted to be free. Immediate abolition would be, in almost all cases, a gross violation of the universal law of love. But let us return to the conclusion furnished by the scriptural argument. Slavery is tolerated in the Bible. It is not made a term of communion by the king of Zion. Consequently, the officers of his church have no power to make it a term of communion. Here is the doctrine for which we contend and by this we hope to save this fair land from being deluged in the blood of its inhabitants, and this free nation from the chains of servitude to European despots. Should the opposite doctrine prevail, should the holding of slaves be made a crime by the officers of the churches, the non-slaveholding states, should they break communion with their southern brethren and denounce them as guilty of damning sin, as kidnappers and men-stealers, as worthy of the penitentiary, as has been done here in this synod, should this doctrine and this practice prevail throughout the northern states, can any man be so blind as not to see that a dissolution of the Union, a civil and perhaps servile war must be the consequence? 
such a war as the world has never witnessed a war of uncompromising extermination that will lay waste this vast territory and leave the despotic powers of europe exulting over the fall of the republic all the elements are here the physical the intellectual the moral elements for a strife different in the horribleness of its character from anything the world has ever witnessed let the spirits of these men be only once aroused let their feelings be only once chafed up to the fighting point let their irritation only be kept up until the north and the south come to blows on the question of slavery their contentions will be as the bars of a castle broken only with the last pulsations of a nation's heart end of proposition from reverend george junkin